Okay, we are in on page 25 of our little booklet, which is Lord's Day 3. Lord's Day 3. And again, it's just a reminder that these uh, this catechism is broken up into uh, Lord's Days so that it can be gone through in a, a one-year cycle, a 52-week period is the way that they broke it up. And they created it to be used in public worship and in church services. We're taking them on a month, so, so there you go. Uh, but let's pray, and then we'll begin our study this morning. Heavenly Father, we are very grateful to be together today, Lord, to enjoy uh, the good meal that you provided for us. And Lord, we thank you for uh, those men and the, the servants, Lord, who have uh, labored uh, for our benefit. And Lord, we thank you for providing so graciously for us. And so we are grateful for the meal, Lord, as well for the time of fellowship to be with our Christian brothers, and Lord, to catch up and to um, just see how, how each of us are doing and to, to have that type of fellowship, Lord, we thank you that you have brought us together. And Lord, what is uniting us together uh, is our common bond of faith, Lord, that we are believers and that we are your children. And so, Lord, we are grateful that uh, while there are other groups of men meeting today, uh, Lord, because of common interest, uh, we're grateful that Lord, the basis and the reason for our meeting together is a common interest in you, Lord, and a desire to know your will and, Lord, to understand your word. So, Father, we pray now that as we open up <clears throat> the scriptures, and, Lord, we, we pray that you would teach us, that you would give us, uh, Lord, a, a mind to understand, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, that you would open up our heart to receive your word, and that it might be implanted deeply within us. Lord, may your spirit, Lord, be with us today, teaching us and guiding us into all truth. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we will begin here with question number six. Question six, and we're dealing with this topic of the uh, guilt and misery of sin, right? Which is uh, a part of this present world. Uh, and in order to come to the knowledge of the comfort that we have in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we have to see the guilt and misery of our sin, right? Without a proper understanding of sin, then we cannot understand and we cannot have salvation. Because what are we being saved from if we don't understand our own sin? And this is where many are deficient today and many churches are deficient because they're not teaching properly, correctly, a biblical theology or a biblical understanding of the nature of sin, right? How deep its consequences are and how depraved the human nature is as a result of sin, right? And this is uh, necessary for us to understand how can the man go to the physician if he does not know the nature of his ailment, right? You must first convince the person. He must be convinced that he has uh, brain cancer before he's going to go to the cancer doctor in order to receive the treatment. And so it is spiritually with men. They must be convinced of the gravity of their spiritual condition and the disease of sin that is plaguing them and its consequences before they'll go to the good physician, right? Because our Lord Jesus says that he did not to come the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And it is not those who are well who need the doctor, but it is those who are sick. So there must be this convincing of the sickness that resides within men because of their own sin. And we must come to understand that before we can have salvation. There can be no salvation without a true knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin as it is against God in our own guilt and share in these things. And so this is what we have been dealing with uh, is the fact that uh, God requires us to love him with all of our heart, soul, might and strength. And God requires us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But none of us can keep this perfectly. But all of us have transgressed this in many, many ways right throughout the course of our life. So now today in these uh questions and answers here, they're answering the, the question of where did this come from, right? How is it that man has come into this state of sin and misery, right? And where does the blame lie? Because if God is our creator and he is the one that created man, then should we blame God 
for our own sin and for the state in which we have come. And this is what they want to be very clear is to, to make certain and sure that we know that God is not responsible for our sin, but we are responsible and we bear the guilt of our own sin. God created us good and we have fallen through our own transgression because of these things. So let's do ver- uh, question six and then we'll look up these scripture verses. Question six says, says, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? And the answer, no. On the contrary, God created man good and in his image, that is in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. So here the question is, did God create man so wicked and perverse? They've already stated and proven that mankind in his natural state is wicked and perverse. Did God create men in this way? Is this the original state in which God created man? Because if this is true, then we would have to attribute the corruption and depravity of man to God, right? If he indeed created us in this way. And the question then is, did God create man in such a wicked and a perverse state? And the answer is no. God did not create man in this way, but on the contrary, God created man good. When God saw all that he had made in creation, God declared that it was very good. All of his creation was in perfect order, perfect harmony, and it reflected the very goodness of God. And this was true when God created man. He made this declaration when he completed the course of creation. The work of creation was complete, and God declares that all of it is very good. And if man in his created state, had this depraved nature, then God would be a liar if he said that it is very good. Therefore, for God to claim that it is very good means that man could not have been in the state that we are now in at our creation, right? Whenever God finished his work. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Genesis 1, 31 says, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God saw all that he made, everything that God made in the six days of creation, right? From the the universe, uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the plants, uh, the, the animals, right? And then also human beings, mankind, everything that God made, he saw and God declared all of it to be very good, meaning that it has to be free from sin and from death and the corruptions that came as a result of sin entering into the world. The world as we know it is not as it was created when God brought it into existence. Though there is continuity, it is the creation that God created, but this present world is in a state of sin and chaos and misery. It has fallen into this corrupted state because of the sin of man, which has impacted every aspect of creation, but primarily, principally, it has impacted the nature of man, right? But when God created man, He created it very good. So God did not create it wicked and perverse, but God declared that man was good. Also, man was created in God's image, right? In the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here, God created man in his image. And this is the only component of the created world that is declared or stated by God to be created in his image. God did not create the trees, the sun, the moon, the stars, the fish, the cattle, the animals. None of these things were created in the image of God. Now, all of creation does declare the glory of God. It manifests his greatness and his gloriousness. So in that way, there is some of God's presence or some of God's image seen in all of creation. But only of mankind was it declared that man was created in the image of God, that he bore in himself 
some peculiarity, something that was special and unique about man that reflected the very image of God. And this is the way that God created man. And this is why God gives to the man, right, dominion over all of the rest of creation. Everything that was created in this physical world, man was placed in dominion over these things and is called to rule over this world, to rule under the rulership of God. So God being the only sovereign and then man being his under sovereign, right, or his ruler who's going to rule over the world under the authority of God. And this is what man was supposed to do in his original state because he bore the image of God. Now, the next phrase explains what it means for man to bear the image of God. So they're going to define what does it mean for man to be created in God's image. And it says, that is in true righteousness and holiness. The image of God in man was seen in that his created state, Adam's original state, is he was created in true righteousness and holiness. He was without any corruption of sin, but was righteous. He was holy in his original state. So Adam, in his creation, had the ability to love God with all of his heart, soul, might, and strength, and to love his neighbor as himself. And as long as he maintained that original pure state, he would be able to keep the law of God perfectly. Okay, perfectly. Now, this state of Adam was mutable, right? Meaning, it was, he had the ability to keep the law of God, but he also had the ability to break the law of God. And if he broke the law of God, he would fall from his state of original righteousness. He was created with original true righteousness and holiness, but it was not in him in such a capacity that he could never fall from this state. Now, this is a difference between Adam in the garden and what true believers will experience for all eternity. Because when we are recreated into the image of Christ, right? When we bear the image of the man of heaven, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the glorified eternal state, will there be any sin in us at that point? No, we will be created in true righteousness and holiness. But in heaven, will we be able to fall from that state of holiness and righteousness? No, we will be perfect and we will never be able to fall. We will be immutable in that sense, in that we will never transgress and we will never fall eternally. We will be conformed to this image of Christ in true holiness and righteousness. This is the difference between Adam in the garden and what we will be for eternity. Adam was created with true righteousness and holiness. However, he had the ability to fall from that state. It was not in him in an immutable way, but he was mutable. He was subject to change if he transgressed the commandment of God. But he was created in true righteousness and holiness, meaning he had the ability to exercise his heart, his soul, his might, his strength, his will, his emotions, all of these things were tuned in and were rightly ordered toward God, to love God and to love his neighbor as himself. And this is unique to man because trees do not love God in this conscious way. Though trees do exist and they do manifest the glory of God, they are not conscious beings. They are not rational beings, right? They do not have a will in the way that people do, right? And they are not consciously worshiping and glorifying and loving God in the way that they move in their life. But people have this ability to do so, nor do animals, right? Animals don't have a soul, right? So dogs do not go to heaven. Okay, that's, I know, you probably all saw the cartoon, all dogs go to heaven and all cats go to hell. This is what most people believe. But however, it is not (laughs) the second half is true. Dogs don't go to heaven and cats don't go to hell. Though the second part may be more true than the first because animals do not have an immortal soul and they're not rational beings. They don't have the ability to commune with God, though they do exist and though they do glorify God in that they were created by God. And you see the glory and the beauty and the wonder, the ingenuity of God in the various animals that he has created. 
right? All of these things are displaying his glory, but they are not worshiping God in a conscious sense. They're not coming and drawing near to God. They're not thinking throughout the day, am I walking in step with the word of God, with the will of God? I want to know the, the law of God so that I can obey God and keep his commandments. They're natural beings, right? They're brute beasts that are creatures of instinct and their instincts are given to them by God so that they act upon those instincts, but they're not doing it in this conscious way. But people do. And here, Adam in the garden had this true holiness and righteousness so that his whole life was rightly in tune with the will of God and with the glory of God. He was loving God with all of his heart, soul, might, and strength and his neighbor as himself. Which is why the next phrase says, so that he might rightly know God, his creator. He knew God in the true and complete sense. He had a true knowledge of his creator, of his glory, and of his obligation as his creature to live his life for the glory of God and to submit his life to the very will of God. Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, and we'll begin reading in verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17 says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. There, the new self is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And this new self is a reversion or it is God undoing the results of sin and the curse on this world, right? He describes in verses 17 to 22 what our manner of life is like in the natural state, in the sinful state. This is who we are sinfully, but this is not how we were created. And this is for the believer, not the end goal. But the end goal is that we will be renewed, right? Renewed back to our original state and even superior to our original state because in the renewed state, in the image of Christ, we will no longer be able to sin, but we will be made in perfect holiness and righteousness. And this is, he calls, the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So to bear the image of God is to be righteous and holy. And this is how Adam was created. In the image of God, he possessed righteousness and holiness, which is essential to the very character and nature of God. Then also Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 10. Let's pick up in verse 9. It says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So there the new self that is being renewed. This is the life of Christ within the believer. That when we are regenerated, when we are brought out of this state of death and of sin and misery, and the work of redemption begins within us at our conversion, we are created, we have a new creation in our inner man, though the outer man is passing away. And during the time from our conversion to our death, the time of our sanctification, we are being renewed so that more and more 
the image of God and the image of Christ is being manifested within us. Our life is to conform more and more to the image of Christ so that we are growing in godliness and righteousness throughout the course of our life. And here he describes this new self is being renewed to a true knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God, of who he is, of his holiness, his righteousness, and what it is for us to live in a proper way in tune with our creator, right? With the one who has given to us life, breath, and all things. How it is that we ought to live before him. Okay, this is to rightly know him. And then the last phrase says, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to the praise and glory, to praise and glorify him. We are to love God and to live with God in eternal blessedness for the glory of God. And this is how, again, Adam was in his original state. He lived in this way, though, again, for a very short period of time, right? A very small period of time. But at his creation, from his creation until his fall into sin, this is what was true of him in the created state. Psalm 8. Psalm 8, which is a psalm in Hebrews chapter 2 that is applied to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ as the true Adam or the true man. But what is true of Christ and what will be true of us in the eternal state was also true of Adam in his original state, in his created state. Psalm 8, verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries. To make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So there he is extolling the greatness of God's creation seen in the heavens, but also in mankind, mankind as well, in that man's existence is to bring glory and honor to God. And this is how Adam was created. Created in the image of God. Created to have communion with God. To know God. Created with true holiness and righteousness. And that all of his life was to be lived to the glory of God. This is how God created him in his original state. And this is why God declares in Genesis 1.31 that it was very good. Even the creation of man was very good. But as we said... This goodness that was original to man, his original righteousness in creation was mutable, right? Meaning he had the ability to fall from that state. He was not so stable in it that it was impossible for him to fall out of that state. But it was dependent upon his obedience to God. Had he maintained his obedience, had he obeyed God, then he would have continued in this state of blessedness. But if he disobeyed God and transgressed the law of God, then he would be plunged into sin and into death and into misery. And this is why God told him not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This was the commandment that was given to him. If he obeyed that commandment, he would maintain this state of blessedness. If he transgressed that commandment, he would fall from this state of blessedness into a state of sin and misery. And when we look around us today, we are not in a state of blessedness. We are in a state of sin and misery. So then question seven, from where then did man's depraved nature come? Right? It's obvious to anyone who is looking objectively at this world, who has a right mind, that the world in which we live in and mankind as he exists today is not in a state of perfection. That there is not true holiness and righteousness in man, but mankind is depraved in his nature. And if anyone doubts this, you, you just have to have children, right? Anyone who has children knows 
that mankind, man are not good. They are not perfect. They are not holy. They are not righteous. Because all children, even the little ones, even the best ones, from a very early age, they manifest their disobedience, their sinfulness. And then that becomes more pronounced as they get older and older and older. And as we look into the world, the world is filled with all manner of sin and evil and misery, right, that we see all around us. So if man was created by God in this good state, in a blessed state, then how is it that we came into the current state in which we find ourselves? And the answer, where did it come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. From there, our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. This fall of man and mankind into this state of depravity did not come from God, but came from our parents, Adam and Eve, from their disobedience, their transgression of the law of God in paradise. God created them good. God placed them in a paradise. He put them in this blessed state, but he also gave to them an expectation, a commandment, a law that they were to keep and uphold. And as long as they maintained and kept that law, they would maintain their state of blessedness. But if they transgressed that law, then they would be plunged into sin and to ruin. But not only would they be plunged into sin, but the whole world would be plunged into sin and chaos and ruin. And all of their posterity would also come into this state. Right? All of them would enter in that way. And this is why our nature is corrupt because of their sin. The sin that they committed when Adam was in the Garden of Eden, he was not there by himself. Though in terms of existence, it was only Adam and Eve. But in terms of potential, in terms of posterity, who was represented with Adam in the Garden of Eden? Every, every person who has ever existed and each and every one of us in here today. All of us were present with Adam. He was a representative for the whole human race, for all mankind, because everyone ultimately comes from Adam, right? He is the father of all of us, right? We've all come and descended from him. And this is why it is so important for us to contend for the historicity of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And that all men, no matter where they're from, whether they live in America, whether they live in Africa, whether they live in Asia, if they live in Antarctica, wherever they live, that all men have their descent from one man. And that one man is Adam. And that Adam served as a representative or as a head, a federal head for the entire human race so that what was true of him is also true of us. Had Adam kept his state of righteousness, then he would have done that for all of his posterity. But if Adam transgressed the law of God and so inquired guilt and shame and condemnation because of his sin, then that would happen to all of us as well. This is the way that God did it there in creation. If, and some might say, well, this isn't fair. Why are we being held responsible for the sin that we didn't commit? But the answer is, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Will the cre creation, will we declare and say that God is unjust? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And if God wants to create one man, and if God wants to hold the whole human race accountable because of his sin, then does God have the right and prerogative to do so? Absolutely. And who's the best determiner of justice and righteousness? God is, not us. Also, it should be pointed out that men have no problem with being counted righteous on the basis of Christ, right? Isn't this our hope of salvation? That we are counted righteous. We are accepted in the sight of God, not on the basis of our own works, not in our own person, but on the basis of Jesus Christ. So if it's not just for God to hold us accountable for our sin because of the sin of Adam, then it's also not just for God to account us righteous on the basis of Jesus Christ. But everyone wants that, don't they? So you see how corrupt this is, how inconsistent it is? No, God can do whatever he pleases. God is the determiner of what is just and righteous and what is unjust and unrighteous. We are not. 
and we should submit to what God says. And the Bible clearly teaches that everyone, the whole human race, acquired guilt and was present with Adam, and that when Adam sinned, we sinned with him so that we actually transgressed the law of God in the garden with Adam, and we incurred guilt and condemnation as a result of Adam's transgression, and that we all enter into this world in a depraved state. From our birth, from conception, we have a sinful, depraved nature that is in need of redemption. Now, as that nature grows, and as the person grows, then that nature begins to manifest itself more and more. So that we have guilt from Adam's original sin, but also we have the guilt of our own transgressions, our own actual sins that we commit throughout the course of our life. But all of us are depraved in our nature because of the sin of Adam. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, and we'll read the whole chapter. And here again, it's very important that we make sure that we are, God is not being charged with our sin. That we're not accusing God or saying that the reason we are sinful is because of God. No, our sin is because of our own disobedience to God, both in Adam and then in ourselves as well. And God is free from any sin. This is as it says in James, right? That we should not say that God causes us to sin, right? We, he is free from any responsibility. Though, of course, sin entering into the world was not contrary to the will of God. It was not an accident. It wasn't something that God created man and he hoped that they kept his law, but he had his fingers crossed and he didn't know what was going to happen. Everything that took place in the garden, even Adam's disobedience, all of this was ordained according to the will of God. And what is the purpose for God bringing all this about? What is God's chief goal in the creation of this world? It is to glorify himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And what is the chief event that brings glory and honor to God in the person of Christ? His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. This is the purpose for which God created the world, is to glorify himself and to manifest his glory both in the salvation of sinners so as to display the glory of his grace and mercy in the person and work of Christ and also to show his glory in his justice against sinners, which he also manifests in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he has appointed the judge of all things and will judge the world in perfect righteousness. This is the purpose for which God created the world. So sin entering into the world is not contrary to the will of God. It's not something that was unordained by God. It's not an accident. Yet at the same time, God is free from any charge of guilt or sin, but man is responsible for his own sin. And whenever we ask who was at fault, who is to blame for sin entering into the world, we are to blame, right? It is our fault. It was Adam and Eve in the garden that committed sin. Okay, chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, 
What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, and from for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim in the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So there it's very clear that this sin was the instigator of this was the serpent, who through his temptation and through his deception deceived the woman, and so that she transgressed the commandment of God, and then she gave to her husband, and her husband transgressed the commandment of God. Though the commandment was known to them, and it was made very clear to them, and God clearly told them what would be the results or the impact of their transgression of the commandment, and this is exactly where the serpent attacked them, at the very nature and the clarity of the word of God, and so deceived them so that they committed sin, and then as a result of their sin, then their eyes were opened, right? They had an experiential knowledge of sin at this point. Before this, they did have a conceptual knowledge of evil because God himself called the tree the knowledge of good and evil. And God explained to them the difference between good and evil, what it is to keep the law, what it is to transgress the law, and what are the consequences of keeping the law and the consequences of transgressing the law. So all of that was made known to them, and they had this conceptual knowledge of the difference between good and evil. But at this point, when they actually transgress, now they have an experiential knowledge of sin, and their eyes are opened in that way, and then they realize that they are naked, they have guilt, they have shame, and there's no longer this communion with God, but now they are seeking to hide themselves from God because they are afraid of Him. In the original state, were they afraid of God? No, they had communion with God. They loved God, but now because of sin, they are afraid of Him. And then there are the results that come because of this, you know, in that the woman will have pain in her child rearing. So that thing, which is her honor and dignity, right, that she is the mother of all the living. Right? They are the ones that bear the children, and this is a great honor that God has given to the woman in contrast to the man. Yet in this great honor, there will be difficulty and much pain. And it is a very painful thing, and many women uh, through the years have perished. They, they die giving birth to children. It is a very hard thing. And then also, there's going to be this hostility between the man and the woman. Right? She will desire her husband. I take that to be not in a good way. But she's going to desire to subvert his authority and his rightful place as the head and lead of the home. She will be subverting that and there will be constant conflict between the man and the woman. And we all know that this is true as well. Even in good homes, even in Christian homes, there's not perfect harmony between the husband and wife. But there is some dissonance and disagreement and discord that comes as a result. And then with the man, his labor will be very difficult and hard. There is a curse that comes on the whole world as well. The whole creation has been subjected to bondage and to corruption, according to Romans chapter 8, and thorns and thistles and the difficulty, the chaos that we see in the natural order. And it will be difficult for men. They'll have to work in a very hard way. And then eventually they're going to die and they're going to return 
back to the dust. And all of this was because of man's sin. He's the one who took the fruit and he ate of those things. Okay, so there it's obvious that it was their sin. Adam and Eve there in paradise who did this. But also from this, our nature has also become corrupt so that we are conceived in sin. Here, the teaching or the doctrine is called the doctrine of original sin. Meaning that when Adam sinned, when he committed this first transgression, he did not do that merely as a private individual. Though it did impact him privately in his own person, but he also did that as a representative or as a covenant head over the entire human race, over all of those who would descend from him. And since all mankind come from Adam, then all mankind enter into the world with this corrupt, sinful nature. We enter into the world dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 12 to 18, or 12 to the 21 through the end of the chapter. This is the clearest teaching in the Bible on original sin. Though not the only teaching, but it is very clear this is what he's dealing with here. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and specifically verses 12, 18, and 19, but we'll read all of it. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Here, when it says death spread to all men because all sinned, he means that in relationship to Adam, right? Because all men are subject to death, Right? This is obvious. This is plain. Everyone can see this. Is there anyone in the world who is immortal? Who is eternal? Who's going to live forever? No, if this world continues as it is, that in a matter of time, what's going to happen to every one of us in this building? We're all going to die, right? We are all subject to death. So it's obvious that death is upon every man. And where does death come from? Right? How did death enter into the world? Death is not natural to the world that God created, but death is a consequence of sin. All men are subject to death because all men sinned. And he does not mean that we're created or that we come into the world and we have immortality in us. And then the first time that we sin against God, that's when we die. Right? If that was true, then babies would never die. But do babies die? Yes, babies are subject to death. Because when did the baby sin? The baby sinned in Genesis chapter 3. Right? That's the point he's making here. Death entered the world through sin, and, and all have sinned in Adam. Right? We all have the guilt of sin. If babies did not have the guilt of sin, then the consequence of sin would not be seen within them. But it's obvious that this is not the case. Right? Because even babies die. Therefore, they have the guilt of sin. And their sins are Adam's sins because a baby, a one-day-old baby, does not have the ability to yet commit conscious sins against God. Right? It has no understanding of the law of God, of the will of God, even the exercise of those things. Most of the time, it's just sleeping. Yet, the baby is still guilty because the baby sinned in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Right here, sin is not imputed where there is no law. He doesn't mean that there is no guilt or knowledge of sin before the giving of the law. He just means that when the law came, there is a greater understanding and awareness of the sin of man. However, even from Adam to Moses, right? Moses being the one who received the law in the written tablet where it was made very clear to him, right? And it was in the same way of Adam, right? Adam was given a very clear commandment from God. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? He was given that law, he was given the consequences of that law, and he transgressed against it. Right? In terms of the publishing of the law, 
the law was not published outwardly in this way from Adam until Moses. Moses is the one who received the Ten Commandments in that way. Yet what happened to all the people from Adam to Moses? They all died. Showing that they were all under what? They were all under sin. Even before this formal publishing of the law, they were still dying because of the sin of Adam and they were still committing sins against God and they were committing sins against the law of nature or the law that was written on the heart. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgressing, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more to those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. There, it's very clear. One transgression. And what is the one transgression we're talking about? The eating of the fruit in the Garden of Eden. Eating from the tree of the knowledge in good and evil. From that one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. And all men are condemned because all men bear guilt and responsibility from that one transgression of Adam. Okay, then even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So there again, through one man's disobedience, the one man being Adam, and his one act of disobedience being his eating of the tree of the knowledge and good and, of, and evil, the result of this is that the many were made sinners. The many offspring or the many descendants that came from Adam were all made sinners because of his one act of disobedience. Right? This is Adam serving as a head or a representative for the entire human race. Now, just as a side note, when it's saying that through his transgression or through his disobedience, the many are made sinners... Even so, through the obedience of the one, and who is the one we're talking about here? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his obedience, the many will be made righteous. He does not mean that every single person in the history of the world will be made righteous because of the obedience of Christ. Who is he applying it to? Only to his people, right? Only to those that he represents. And Christ does not represent all men without distinction. Adam represents all men, right? In that every single person has descended from him. But Christ is a representative only over his people or only over the elect. Those who are believers and those who believe in him then are made righteous because of his obedience. So there's not a one-to-one -one correlation in the people that they represent, okay? Some people will conclude universal atonement or universal salvation because he's using this universal language, but they're applying it, they're misapplying it, and they're not doing it in the right way. So, okay, Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Here, this is David the prophet confessing his sin after he had committed the transgression with Bathsheba. And in Psalm 51, verse 5, says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Here, when David says he was brought forth in iniquity, and he was conceived in sin, he does not mean that his mother was an adulteress, or that she was a fornicatress, that she was a loose woman, and that she committed a sin, and that his conception was a result of some immoral sexual relationship between his mother and some man, whether, you know, his, his father, but they weren't married or she was committing adultery, right? He means it in the sense of original sin, that from his conception, 
From his birth, he was brought forth in sin. From the womb, even here in the womb, right? His very conception, he says. So even when he was in the womb, he was already a what? He was a sinner. He came into this world dead in his trespasses and sins. And he knows this because of Genesis chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5. What Romans chapter 5 is explaining in verses 12 to 21 more thoroughly, David is saying here in this one verse, right? That's the concept. That is the doctrine that he is teaching as a part of his confession. And this is his confession of the guilt of his sin. So he's confessing not only his actual sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba, but also he's confessing the guilt of his original sin that he received from his father, Adam. And we have this twofold guilt, right? And all of us bear this as well. And we need to confess this too, that we were brought forth in iniquity and in sin did our mother conceive us. He's not using that as an excuse to justify what he's done. He's using this to magnify and exasperate his sin. Not only am I guilty because of what I've done, I'm guilty from my very conception, right? This is how sinful, how corrupt my nature is. And this is what we need to understand as well. Then question eight. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? This is the question, and this is what many people believe. Yes, certainly men are not perfect, right? Certainly no one is perfect, but there's still good in men, right? There's still some bit of goodness in men, and they're able to use that goodness to grab hold of God, to believe in God, right? To do some good before God that is the basis for their salvation. And this is the problem with free will, right? Free will. Those who teach and are proponents of free will they are typically accompanying that is this idea that the nature of man is not so corrupt that man is unable to do any good or that man is completely inclined toward only evil. Even if they say man is 99% evil or 99.9% evil, they'll still maintain that there is a very small portion just a sliver of the soul that is unaffected by sin, that is inclined to good, and that man is able to use this sliver of the soul in order to believe in God, exercise his will, and take hold of Christ for his salvation. The problem is that the sin of man completely corrupts us so that every aspect of our being is depraved, is corrupted by sin. And the will of man is not free. Yes, man is free to exercise his will, but he's not free to exercise it contrary to his nature. But his nature is overriding and superseding his will. It is controlling his will so that whatever he wills must be consistent with his nature. And what is the nature of man? It is corrupt, it is depraved from his very birth. So then will a man ever use his will to do good? No. Even if he's commanded to use his will to do good, even if the option is given to him to do good, he will never do it because his will is bound by his nature. And this is the problem with men. The heart, the will, the emotions, the mind, the actions, the feet, the eyes, everything is constrained by the nature of man and the nature of man is wholly corrupted into sin. Therefore, is man able to do any good? None. They can do no good before God, but only that which is sinful and only that which is contrary to the law of God. We are completely inclined toward evil. So this is total depravity. That's what they're teaching here. Total, universal, complete depravity of man and of the nature of man. And that's the answer. Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Yes, the nature of man is so corrupt that it is unable to do any good and is inclined only to evil. This is what is true of man in his nature, in the natural state. And what does it take to overcome this corrupt nature of man? It takes a miracle of God. And the miracle of God is regeneration. The the soul, the man, his heart must be regenerated He must be born again 
before anything good can come out of him. In the natural state, he can do no good. But in the regenerated state, when he is reborn, born again, then he is able to bring forth good before God by the work of the Spirit of God. Okay, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Genesis 6, 5. This will answer the question of, is man so corrupt that he's only unable to do evil, only inclined to evil, and can do no good at all? Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then chapter 8, verse 21. Chapter 8, verse 21. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Here, now the importance of this is Genesis 6, 5 is declared concerning mankind and his nature before the flood. And Genesis 8.21 is declared of mankind after the flood. So was the flood of man able to cure the corrupt nature of man? And the answer is no. Even though after the flood, you're starting over and the man you're starting over with is Noah, who is a true believer and a regenerate man, yet he also is still a son of Adam. And as a descendant of Adam his children will all inherit a depraved, corrupt nature, and their children will all inherit this depraved, corrupt nature, and so on and so forth. Right? It takes the regenerating work of the Spirit. The flood is not able to solve these issues. Only Christ can, only Christ can solve the issue of sin. Job chapter 14. Job 14 and verse 4. Job 14, verse 4. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? Answer, no one. Who can make what is unclean clean? And his answer is no one, meaning no man. Now, who is able to make someone unclean clean? Christ is able to do so. God is able to do so. Only the Lord God has the ability to change the leopard's spots. Only he can make the Ethiopian take away his skin. God has the ability to do this, but no man has the ability, right? I don't have the ability to change any of your nature or any of your hearts. I cannot do that for my own children. The, the minister, the priest, the pope, whoever it is, no one has the ability to do this. All we can do is use the means given to us by God to bring this about, which is the teaching of the word of God. In prayer, we should teach the Bible to our children. We should pray for our children. But who is the only one that can change the hearts of our children? Only God can do this. Only God has the ability to do so. No man has this capacity. Then also, Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So all we like sheep have gone astray. And here, the prophet Isaiah, what group of people is he writing to? He's not writing to Gentile sinners. He's writing to Jews. And yet even the Jews who descended from Abraham, who had Abraham as their father, what was still true of their nature? They still had a corrupt nature because Abraham was their father in a sense. But who else was their father before Abraham? Adam was their father. And they all are like sheep, and they have all gone astray. And this is true of all men from birth. Therefore, if there is going to be salvation, if there is going to be any good in man, then it has to come through new birth. Right? There has to be the regeneration that comes by the Holy Spirit of God. And this would be John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. And this is why in terms of the sequence of events of salvation, we must say that regeneration, in terms of 
the application of salvation in the life of the person, in the events that take place in the person's life, right? And there are many events that must be true of us for us to be true possessors of salvation. Do we have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved? Yes. Do we have to repent of our sins? Yes. Do we have to live a godly life? Yes. Do we have to persevere to the end? Yes. All of these things must be true of us. But if we are corrupt and dead in our sins, how can we believe? How can we repent? How can we live a godly life? How can we persevere to the end? Right? What must take place to overcome this corrupt will of man, the corrupt nature of man, and that is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So in terms of the sequence of events, in the application of redemption, in the life of the believer, the first thing that must take place is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are things that take place before even this, such as God's foreknowledge, such as our being predestined. And when I foreknowledge, I don't mean God looking down through uh, the tunnels of history, seeing who would choose him and then choosing us on that basis. Uh, Foreknowledge, I mean that he loved us in advance. And on the basis of his love for us, he chose and predestined us for this salvation. And then he accomplished it by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he consumed our sin in his flesh. He came and he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He was resurrected for our justification. And now he is ascended to the right hand of God. And there he makes intercession for us. But in terms of this being applied in our life, regeneration is the first step. And that must take place before a person can believe in Christ, before a person can repent of his sins, before a person can live a godly life, before he can persevere to the end, he must be regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So then, who is the source of all of our salvation? Where did this all come from? It all comes from God. It is the work of God. Though He is working within us and doing these things within us, it ultimately, it all must come from God. And it is the Spirit who gives this life to us. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of... The flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here, when Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 3, that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? The necessity of new birth, of spiritual birth, right? That must take place before a person has the ability, the capacity to see the kingdom of God. How can you enter the kingdom of God if you can't see the kingdom of God? It's impossible for these things to be. And before that can happen, you must be born again. New birth or regeneration must take place before one is able to see and enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus believes that Jesus is talking about physical birth, right? How can a man be born again when he's old, right? We cannot re-enter into our mother's womb and have a second birth into this world. But Jesus is not talking about our physical birth. What birth is he talking about? He's talking about the spiritual birth, that which takes place in the heart of man by the Spirit of God. And that's why he says that you must be born of water and the Spirit, right? You must be born of water, that is the Spirit. There must be the washing of the Spirit in the inner man, in the heart. The cleansing of the heart from our corruptions before we can believe in Christ. This is necessary. The heart must be changed and regenerated 
given a new heart, and then what is the first impulse of that new heart created by the Spirit? It is to believe in Jesus Christ, to repent of sin, and to live our life for His glory. This is what the new heart does, and that takes the work of the Spirit. And it happens according to the will of God and according to the Spirit. Right? No one knows how the wind blows. It just You just see the impact and the results of its blowing. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's not something that can be controlled and manipulated by man. No one can determine through anything that they do in this life. It doesn't matter what family we're born into. It doesn't matter what our national heritage is. Is It doesn't matter what country we live in. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter whatever ritual that we undergo. No one is able to, by his own power, produce regeneration. It has to happen according to the will of God and by the power of the Spirit. But it's essential in order for there to be salvation. And this is the only thing that can overcome the corrupt nature of man. It takes the power of the Spirit of Christ. It's a miracle, right? That must take place for us to be saved. Okay, so we did it. So that's Lord's Day 3, and we will pick up next time, uh, next, uh, next month on Lord's Day 4.